just meeting families of lost soldiers it was like for me that was really emotional and to be honest with you I'm, I'm not a sort of guy that goes around crying but this whole trip to Armenia I've, I've never cried so much in my own in my life it's, it's just been really touching just to see like even now I talk about it, I get goosebumps just to like see going to meet families and meeting children who just lost their father Episode 43, I bring in Emil Gaysen. Most of you know he's been in the front lines in Armenia during the war against Azerbaijan. He's there to document the war. We obviously spoke on that, but he also opened up about some personal stories, like the time his brother died while getting robbed. He's an excellent interview. He doesn't hold back, and most important, he doesn't care what you think of him. We open up our conversation about the time he was enrolled in the military and where he was when they captured Bin Laden. Episode 43, Emil Gason. Here we go. How you doing, mate? Yeah, it's all good, mate. Good, man. It's good to hear your voice. Do you do you sleep? Uh, yeah, quite well. <laughs> I texted you? you throughout the entire day yesterday, man, and you replied. Uh, I was like, dude, it's it's always... like it's like three, four in the morning right now over there. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm up late. I'm not, I get up late and I go to bed late. A yeah, lot of people horrible. obviously know what you did in Armenia, and I, I know about the documentary, and everybody's aware of all that, but I don't think a lot of people know about... You've got some background in the military, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so I, I served in the British Royal Marines as a Royal Marine Commando for 12 years. Uh, my first tour was in 2001, 2002, when we went up looking for Bin Laden after 9-11. Mm. Then I was involved in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where we're one of the first units in the southern Iraq and then pushed all the way up to Basra. And then uh, we then, the British embassies changed and we took over Helmand province. So then I was going through tours of Helmand province, which were quite kinetic operations. So we're fighting quite heavily in, in Helmand because the Taliban, they wanted to hold on to it. So yeah, before I went into filming, I had quite an intensive um, career in the, in the British forces. Where were you when Bin Laden was captured? Oh, I was at a girlfriend's house at the time about to go furniture shopping. So <laughs> so when I found out Bin Laden had been caught, and this is like early hours, in the, well, early in the morning for me, I had to stop and I just went to the fridge and just opened a can of beer and just sat down and just drank a can of beer. So then I went furniture shopping. I was quite merry after that. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a celebration day for me. That's awesome. So <laughs> were you in the military when it happened? You were just not... Not on duty? Yeah, it's not on duty at the time, yeah. Okay. And then this filmmaking and documentaries, how many have you made so far, or have you? So, so far I've made two featured documentaries. Uh, where it started about is when I left the military in 2012, I went into bodyguarding work, and then I started doing anti-piracy work for the Somali pirates that were attacking ships. And it was, just, it was just tedious work, and I didn't really enjoy it. So I discovered Mohammed NYZ, Jihadi John, who was cutting everyone's heads off in, in Syria, went to the same school as me in London. And then a few nights later, I met a guy in a bar that was going out to join the Kurds to fight as a volunteer fighter. So I decided, I spoke to a few TV companies. One of them was interested in making a documentary. And then two days before we were supposed to fly to start filming, they pulled out. 
Mm. So I just went on eBay, bought myself a camera for nine hundred dollars, uh, booked a flight to northern Iraq, and then from there for two and a half years I was going back and forth to Iraq, Syria, went over into Iran with the rebels there. So that's how I started making documentaries. So I've made one feature documentary on volunteer fighters that were fighting Islamic State. And then after that, I went to film school for a year. And then after film school, I then made a feature documentary on volunteer fighters that went out to fight Russian separatists in Ukraine. So in the Donbass region. So the documentaries, you can see them now. They're on YouTube, they're on Amazon Prime. So Robin Hood Complex. The first one is Robin Hood Complex, the fight against Islamic State. And the second one is Robin Hood Complex, Europe, Europe's Forgotten War, Ukraine. So just search Robin Hood Complex on Amazon? Um, yeah, Amazon or YouTube, you'll find okay. it. Okay. Now, yeah. how many of these have you done? Like, when you were on your way to Armenia, how many of these have you done, these type of documentaries, like on the battlefield, in the middle of all, all of this? Yeah, this is the third one. So this is my third feature documentary I'm, mm-hmm. I'm currently making now. So, yeah, I'm self-funded. I self-produce, self-direct everything. Uh, it, things are getting a little bit more sophisticated as as I go on and can become more established. But yeah, generally I, I do most of the work in it, um, the pre-production, production. Now, hopefully for this project, we're going to hopefully have a team that can do the post-production to assist me with it. But yeah, free feature documentaries. And the reason I like doing feature documentaries, a lot of people stay away from them because they're just too long. So feature really you're, you're looking at the plus hour to an hour and a half mark. So really this documentary is going to be another one that's about 80 minutes, 85 minutes or so. So I just think the stories I'm telling can't be told in short snippets. They need they need the time and need dedication. And that's why these projects are so long and they take such a lo- large time to like produce. You always have a passion in film? For film? Mm-hmm. No. I, really, I, I never never even knew how to use a camera hmm. and it, it it literally i fell into it and like i say we're meeting a guy in a bar hmm. finding out muhammad and wazi went to the same school as me and then from there it's just the storytelling came from there I've always been passionate about telling stories in the military that's what people do when you're bored you hmm. tell stories but now telling it on camera and on screen is a pattern it's now a passion of mine how hard was it to get press credentials in armenia uh, Armenia wasn't too bad. In, in, they were more open to Azerbaijan. That's why I went to Armenia. Uh, they were a bit still restricted on journalists. They weren't fully open. They, especially for what I do, is I do combat stuff, and they they clearly don't know who I am from anyone. But they were they kept on saying to me, "Oh, the front line's dangerous. It's too dangerous for you to go there." And it's just like, right. I, d- I had to sit one of them down and just explain to him my background without being arrogant with it. Mm-hmm. Just explain to him my, my military experience, the combat experience now I've got as a journalist. And just say to I, I even said to him, I go, I'm more, more experienced than the majority of your soldiers on the front line fighting. And you're telling me I can't go to the front line to report. And I, I just said to them, it's simple. I go, you, you want the world to know what's going on here. But at the moment, you're not allowing me to even take photos or film trucks driving down the road, military trucks. I go, so to the world, it looks like it's a humanitarian crisis rather than an actual war that's going on here. And you need to start telling your story. So in the end, once they, once I gave them a little sit-down talk, they were a little bit more open to it. But there's still so many restrictions on what you can't film, what you can't say. But that's just standard, really. The last documentaries I made, normally I just take taxis to the front line on my own. I just get a taxi, just roll and turn up. Uh, that's how I've done it in Syria, that's how I've done it in Iraq, that's how I've done it in Ukraine. But this one... It, 
it was a little bit because it was conventional force against force. You had to get more paperwork. But even then, towards the end, once the war was over, they became a bit like no one really cared where you went, what you done. So I just I just exploited that situation just to get the footage. You mentioned you tried to go on the Azeri side. If you did, and if they gave you credentials, would you be able to go back to the Armenian side and go back and forth, or would you have to stay on one or the other side? Yeah, this is the thing. No, I don't know anyone that's been to both sides. And some people say, oh, well, it's biased if you've only been to one side. And I get what, what, what people are saying that, but this documentary is about humanization of the perspective of the Armenian side. If I was to make a documentary on the war in Afghanistan, for example... Just because I don't film the Taliban doesn't mean it's biased. It's from a one-sided perspective. So really, because I've made the documentary with the Kurds, Turkey is not very fond of the Kurds. Um, there's been all, there's been a bit of a fallout with that from some people in Turkey saying that I'm a terrorist supporter because I filmed the documentary with Kurds. So really, Turkey is the second most country that for for imprison imprisonment journalists after China. So. I don't really particularly want to take that chance with Azerbaijan and Turkey because they're not exactly over to free press. So that's why I'm more lean to Armenia. And knowing that Armenian side is they're the underdog here. They're a the small population. They're fighting on their own. Um, I just thought it'd be more of an interesting story to tell. How much did you know about Armenia prior to your trip? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was an expert. No, I, I knew about the genocide. Well, well just basic information about the genocide about the 90s war but really that was it i didn't really know too much to be honest with you and the reason why i got involved with this project is because i do combat journalism filmmaking and everyone was messaging me saying oh you got there's a war going on you go into it and i just mm. thought if it's anything like so i've done a bit of research and i thought if it's anything like the 2016 four-day war by the time i put my flight get to the airport get over there establish myself the war will be over um so it was about it was about a week after the war was still going on and there was, it was still, I could still see it um, raging on and there wasn't much media coverage. So then I just bit the bullet and thought, right, I'm just going to go out there and just fact find, see what's going on. And that's what I've done for the first trip. I've done two weeks out there in the front line areas in Stepanica and all that. And then after that, I had to, I left for a week because I had another job on I had to do in Ukraine. And then I went back again and I only just returned a couple of days ago. So I've, in total, I've done about six and a half weeks, seven weeks in Armenia, in the region there covering what's going on. Incredible. How do you feel about the Armenians now after you've been there for six, seven weeks? <sighs> the, the things with the Armenians, they are, they are beautiful people. And it's, Everyone bent over backwards to help me in this project. And it, I think the reason that was is because the rest of the world weren't really interested in telling this story. So for an Englishman like me to turn up, start talking in my English accent, explaining what's going on and doing it in a humanization way, people warmed to that. And people, it, you'd always get the, the amount of times, if I was given a dollar every time someone said to me, are you a spy? I'll be a very rich man um, because everyone thinks just because you're Western and you're trying to tell someone's story, you've got to be up to something. Mm -hmm. And it's not the case. And our means are very suspicious as, as it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just breaking down them barriers with people, just telling the stories that, yeah, the people are amazing. The country is a beautiful country. And not only that is like I see that Armenia has many issues, so many issues that they haven't addressed for so many years. And the intergenerational, um, problem with genocide the trauma that's still there that people still the mindset of the fear of another genocide coming because even countries like the united kingdom hasn't recognized it um so i understand that now and i 
just meeting people and understanding why they're so passionate to stand and fight for their lands. Um, yeah, it's opened a whole new world to me in the sense of what's actually going on in that region. You've opened up a whole new world for Armenians and non-Armenians as well. I would imagine your social media blew up because of this too, right? Because the Armenians are, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to support those who support us. And I would imagine your social media kind of showed that. Yeah, massively. The jail had about um, 8,000 followers on Instagram, for example, and it's just shot up to awesome. over 40 now. Beautiful. Um, and, but yeah, it, it, it's, I think with the Armenian community, the diaspora is... This, there is a diaspora guilt and a lot of people don't want to talk about that but I think it's important to talk about is that so many Armenians that are living around the world because of the genocide when there were so many people that left that region and the second or third generation are Armenians who have this draw to the motherland but they've don't, then some of them have never been to Armenia, or if they have been to Armenia, they've only been there for short holidays and stuff. And when there's a conflict going on and they're still sat, for example, in LA, there is that guilt that, what can I do to help? So loads of so many people funded, sent so much money and equipment over to help. But there's definitely um, a difference between Armenians and the diaspora in 2020. And it just shows, but what we're trying to do in the documentary as well, we want to highlight that. We want to talk about the fact is that it's like a layer, an onion. There's so many different layers to it that it weren't just the soldier on the front line fighting. There was his family with the work they were doing in behind the scenes, the people of Armenia, what they were doing for the war effort, like putting together camouflage nets and um, sewing sleeping bags up, putting them, getting equipment, sending out. And then you've got the, the outer layer of the diaspora that was sending so much in to help. Um, I think that's why it's, so, it's such a personal and a humanization story that there were so many people involved in this. And knowing that with Armenians, everyone knows someone who served in the front line, who was directly involved in the war. If not this war, it, the 90s war. And I was, there was one time where I was going to meet a family of a soldier who just died. And we're in a car and the guy, he's a friend of mine now, but the guy he was driving, his father died in the 90s war. And he was telling the story and he was like, yeah, we're talking. I was like, oh, wow. And the girl who sat in the back of the car, whose cousin had just died, her father died in the first, in the 90s war as well. And now her cousin's just died in this war. And it's just like, out of four of us in the car, 50% had like, and then the other girl in the car, her father fought in the, in the last war as well. And it's just, everyone's got a connection to what's going on in Armenia that lives there or, or was part of the diaspora. You were really tight and close to these guys. And, I can tell that the, you probably had to peel back the onion for them to feel comfortable with you because I'm sure there was a huge barrier for those guys in terms of trusting you. How many of those guys did you get close with? The thing is with soldiers, because when I turn up, once I explain to them my background about being an ex-military myself and serving, the barrier, the, the relationship between journalist and soldier is relaxed very quickly is because I understand how to act in a, in amongst soldiers. I understand that the body language, I understand posture, I understand the way it works and everything else. So really, when they, they, sometimes people can be quite hostile. And once they know my background, they're a lot more relaxed than they are with other journalists. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that so many times that they it's, it's like a mutual language we talk. And even though we don't, we don't talk the same language, we don't wear the same uniform, or we could be like different religion, for example, or from other conflicts I've been to, is there's that mutual respect that you're a soldier, I'm a former soldier, 
do you want to tell me your story? And it, like I even said the other day, I put it on Instagram the other day, is one guy messaged me out of the blue, one of the soldiers, and he had someone translate for him uh, to send me this message. And he's like, the only reason I gave you an interview is because you are, you're a former soldier. And I didn't give you that interview as a journalist. I gave it to you as a soldier. Mm. And this just moments I had is like quite touching for me. The fact is that people trust me to tell their story. Um, it's because I understand conflict, and that and that's I think that's the difference. And there's nothing worse than I don't like journalists personally. Yeah. Some toffee nose mm-hmm. douchebag that turns up all he, and all he's interested in is a twenty minute interview to get what he needs and then then go again. It's bit about building rapport with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try and do. Sometimes I don't have the luxury of that because time constraints of someone else saying to me, oh, you've only got an hour in this location and we've got to move on, for example. But yeah, sitting down, having cups of tea, drinking coffee, just listening to their jokes. Like one one of the guys in my Instagram stories that was quite popular was Chuck Norris. And um, this guy, we turned up at the front line, front line and he was showing me around and everyone, all his friends are like joking, calling him Chuck Norris and that. And he's like, they're saying, Chuck Norris, you can show a mirror around the place. And he's like, yeah, cool. So we got on really well, this guy. And But then some people who don't know what's going on, they're seeing that on social media, they're messaging me and saying, that's really disrespectful. And I'm like, what are you on about? He's called, he calls himself Chuck Norris. His men call him Chuck Norris. I'm just going along with it and they're loving it because I am. Yeah. And so it's just these little, little stories. And this is why people open up to me. Yeah, you can tell, man, you had a, a really good rapport with those guys, and it, and it came off. It came off that way. By the way, talking about social media, how much hate did you get from Azeris <laughs> and Turks on the other side? So, yeah, same as so one person said to me, you've got to be a spy because you don't get any hate mail from the Turks or Azerbaijanis or the Azeris. And I was like, well, I do. What I do is I just simply block them straight away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've had a lot, but... The problem is I don't, I don't, well, it's not a problem. What I don't do is I don't engage with them. So I don't argue with them. I don't feel, feed the algorithm. I don't allow them into like to comment anymore. I just stop it there and dead, dead. and just block. Because this is not worth it. And any Armenian would know themselves. Or any, even any Kurd I know that I've, I've filmed with before. The Turks and their Zeris, are ve- they are just trolls. They're very trolling people. Mm-hmm. They love putting their flags up. They love just talking about killing people. And it's it's so crude. And it's just, I'm not, I'm not entertaining it. So I just delete them. You've got, obviously, military background, like you mentioned. How many times did you just want to grab an AK and just and just go to work? <laughs> well, I, because when I was in the military, I, I'd done quite a lot of fighting myself. So it's, it's out of my system. Mm. The, the actual war fighting is out of my system. So... A lot of people, even even guys I serve with, go, yo, you, you must carry a gun. Like, you, you must like, have something covert. I'm like, nothing. All I carry is a camera. That's my weapon. <laughs> and it's like, even my mates are like, I don't get it. It's like, yeah, but you used to like love fighting. When we're in the military in Afghan, you'd always want to go out and fight. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, that's, I'm over that now. And not in that is my time in the military. The amount of fights I've been in with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or whoever it was, the Iraqis, we, we, we didn't achieve anything in my in my eyes. The war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we, we just opened the, the opening ground, um, the, well, the breeding ground for Islamic State in Iraq, for example. In Afghanistan, the positions we were fighting over and we held are now controlled by the Taliban. So I think fighting with a gun, what, did, what, what didn't I actually achieve? So I think with a camera, potentially I could have changed more than I ever did with a weapon by killing people with that. But at the same time, I wouldn't hesitate to pick up a weapon to protect my life or the people around me if I had to. However, that's like worst case scenario because I'm, now I'm a journalist. Um, but yeah, no, 
what does annoy me though is when I see soldiers and I see that they're because obviously being a Romarine commander, you're quite well trained. Um, you're one of the Britain's elite troops, so I'm quite fortunate in understanding warfare. But when I see soldiers that are just not as well trained as to the standard I was, I get a bit like frustrated. I feel like maybe I should help them out with this. And there was one time I was I was in the trenches uh, in Martuni region, and they just built a straight trench, straight, and I'm like. The point, the reason why you, you don't build straight trenches is because if a grenade lands in there or an artillery or mortar round lands in the trench, it's going to go in a straight line. Therefore, you should make it zigzag. So there's a small partition. So it lands in that partition, it's only going to travel so far, and the people on the other side of that wall, that partition, are protected. So I, I, it's me just being a busybody, really, just telling the soldiers about, and I, I don't want to be like trying to direct them up, but I'm, I was like, I even said to them through the translator, I go, lads, have you thought about trying to make them more zigzaggy because of this. And they were like, okay, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Our commander just told us to dig, dig in a straight line. So that's what I get more frustrated with, not the actual fact of having a weapon. It's more just seeing people doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. What about PTSD, Mill? Do you ever get flashbacks? PTSD, is, it's a tough one to like, I think everyone who served in the military has flashbacks. And mm. a flashback could be me sat here watching something and crying my eyes out, which I don't, I don't do. Or a flashback could be me sat in my car at the traffic lights on red and I, I'd smell something and it just reminds me of something, a situation I've been in. Mm -hmm. So that's, so there's different levels of flashbacks and I don't, I don't suffer from post-traumatic stress. I, de I definitely, honestly, I have dreams about things that have gone on in my life, filming and when I was in the military, but no, it doesn't affect me. It's like I can compartmentize and control it. However, what I will say is coming very close to Armenians in this war is, was very different for me because normal wars I've, I've dealt with, I've filmed in, I've normally just filmed the soldier stories. Where for this one, I've met a lot of civilians as well. And, and also my time in the military was just military mindset. And what I saw, I didn't really see my family and how my work affected them. And this campaign, in, being in Armenia, just meeting families of lost soldiers, it was like, for me, that was really emotional. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not a sort of guy that goes around crying. But this whole trip to Armenia, I've, I've never cried so much in my mm. own in my life. It's, it's just been really touching just to see, like, even now I talk about it, I get goosebumps, just to like see going to meet families and meeting children who just lost their father. And you can you see it in their eyes that they don't really understand what's going on. But they know their father's never coming back. And there's one boy in an apartment. He was about 12, 13, same age as my son. And he just sat there. He was just showing us through his iPhone um, pictures of his dad in his uniform as he was scrolling. And it's just like, he just looked empty, this this boy. And I was like, I couldn't imagine. You know I, mean? I take a lot of risk in mine. I don't really think about how what happened to me if I died and how my son would be. But yeah, it's, it's just tough, really tough, this project has been for me. How many of those did you experience with those families? And are those stories going to be in the documentary? Yeah, so the family stories are going to be in the documentary. Definitely, um, it's, it's too powerful not to put in the documentary. So I went to about four different families. Mm -hmm. And then after that, because oh, I had another cameraman with me for three weeks, I, I said, to, and I could see it was affecting him as well. And I was just like, I just drew the line there. And I said, we're not going to any more of them. That's enough for us with filming. Because they were powerful, the ones we'd done. But there was a girl, Maria, and, and another girl, or two girls, Maria and Alice, who, they diaspora girls, um, they get donations sent to them. And what they're doing is they're going around and donating, giving money to families who have lost soldiers. And the girls, they've done over 30, 40 families plus of these. And I, and I even said to them, I, go, I don't know how you do it. 
I go, we've just done a few here and we're emotionally like a wreck. I don't know how you do this day after day going to see these families. So yeah, it's really tough, especially because it's so raw. And it's, it's only yeah. so recent that people have lost families and they haven't processed it in their mind yet. You went to Yerevan, I believe, right? The capital kind of went at the end of your trip. Uh, how was yeah. that? Is, was there still some civil unrest? So, uh, so I was in and out of Yerevan quite a bit. Um, depends on what was going on. But this, there was protests. There was people going out marching. And this is the classic of the media. Is I've seen, so I went to a couple of protests where there was one of them that was it was about 200 people, if that. And then when I looked at the photos online of a news, certain news companies that were covering it, they'd got the angle so tight in that it looked like there were thousands of people there. And it was just like, what are you playing at? They're, they were trying, like, anti-government protests. They, they were saying there was, like, thousands of people. There was, one of them was, like, 200 people there. It's just the camera angles made it look busier than what it was. Yeah, there is there is protests that are still springing up. There was, I think there was one again yesterday, actually. But, yeah, people are pissed off. It's because all the way through the war, even myself, I thought Armenia was going to win. And just the way they were telling the story online, then all of a sudden it was like, we've lost. We signed in a peace agreement. Well, they never said we'd lost, but they signed a peace agreement, which gave away land. And people were like, hold on a second, we were winning this war. What's happened here? So that's why there's a lot of frustration with people knowing what's going on. There's a lot of frustration with soldiers who who were actually winning battles. And they were like, why? Our platoon, our company, we've won loads of battles here. Why are we signing a peace agreement gives away our land when we've been winning in our area? But it's it's not just battles that need to be won. It's the war overall. And the crucial battles were lost by Armenia. And that's why they signed the peace agreement. And I was I was quite upset when I, I was there at the protest where at three o'clock in the morning when the peace agreement was signed. And that would be in the documentary of them smashing up the government building. And people didn't know what was going on because the prime minister wasn't clear on his announcement. If it, He was talking about, we will fight on. I've had to make an agreement. It's like, what, what are you doing? You're fighting on, you're making an agreement. What's, mm-hmm. No one really knew. So that's why so many people were like, angry by it. But now the soldiers are coming back and there's going to be a generation of men that are going to be pretty pissed off because they feel as though they failed because their fathers and their grandfathers fought in the last 90s war and won. And they feel as though now they've lost. So it's going to be tough. So I think definitely for Armenia, they need to start looking and investing into mental health for the soldiers that return. Do you feel like Armenia was winning the war? Hey, it's Mike. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Emil and I. Please share it. Tell a friend or two. And if you can, give me a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get back to my conversation with Emil. From what I saw, yeah. To be honest, yeah. Um, But there again... What I see is what I see. I, I don't see the whole picture. I haven't got the knowledge. I'm not a general. I don't sit in the boards and understand exactly what's going on around the place. But yeah, it seemed like Armenia were winning. And knowing that is the the drone was a crucial straw that broke the camel's back in this war. And for the Armenians to hold out 44 days against Azerbaijan, Turkey, Syrian mercenaries, um, Israeli drones, to be honest... I'll take my hat off to the, the, the Armenian soldiers that's lasted 44 days. It is totally David and Goliath, men with 1960s, 1970s weapons and equipment. Um, most of them are volunteer fighters who have never served in the military. Up against a sophisticated army, the second biggest army in NATO, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and all this, this sophisticated weaponry. So fair play to them for lasting that long. 
you know, we're consistently hearing about these war crimes the Turks and Azeris are committing. How are they able to get away with this? Well, war crimes under the UN stipulated to a certain degree, and there's no shortage of footage of people with their heads being chopped off. Um, actually, recently today, I've just been looking at the videos and reading up on it, where you've got men in Azeri uniforms with the flag on their shoulder cutting off the head of civilians, and it's been fact-checked and it's proven that they are civilians. What it is, is organisations are looking at that. There's been a recent report that's been released where they say there's been war crimes between both sides. They, as international independent bodies like Amnesty International, they don't want to call out one side over the other. So they're talking about an Azeri border guard that had his throat killed, um, slit by an Armenian. And they're also talking about the attacks on Ganja and Stepanaka. So really, both sides have got to answer questions, of course, but without a doubt, looking at the footage online on social media, filmed by themselves, the Azeris, is definitely a higher proportion of war crimes being committed by Azerbaijan. The reason they seem to be getting away with it is because the international community has been silent on this war since day one. So if they're not going to be vocal about anything, why are they all of a sudden going to be vocal about a, a video just being released on a Telegram channel and then released on Twitter and, until it's verified? So, yeah, it very much, I think, it takes time for these things to evolve. It takes time for international independent bodies to look into these things. There's no quick answer to this. It's same as the pr prisoners of war. Everyone in Armenia go, why haven't our prisoners, um, our soldiers been released from Azeri control? It's like, because these things take time. And looking into these events will take time as well. So you think eventually they, they get caught by it and something happens to them? Hopefully. I, I can't say yes or no, but hopefully, fingers crossed, that... The people who have carried out these crimes will be held accountable. How long does that usually take, this, though, Emil? Like, does it take a couple it, of years? Or? You've got to look at the war in Syria and Iraq, the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, these conflicts in the last five years. It's people still haven't been held accountable for war crimes mm -hmm. being committed in these wars. So I can't give an estimated time on how long it takes. But, yeah, definitely that these cases need to be logged with the, the UN and hopefully people are held accountable for it. Seeing these sickening videos of soldiers in their uniform cutting the heads off old men is it, terrifying. When the regions of Kabak were handed over and I was there and I was seeing thousands of people leaving the area with whatever they could physically carry. And then some people were messaging me. Some people didn't really understand the conflict. They go, yeah, but why can't they just stay in their homes? Mm. It's like, because if they stay in their homes... But they've seen in videos of other areas that the Zeris have taken where they've ill-treated people and they've beaten them up and they've cut heads off. Why would you take that chance? Yeah. So it, it wasn't, they didn't have the option to stay and remain behind. So that's why the vast majority of people have left. Your best guess, how many soldiers do you think died, Armenian soldiers? Yeah, this this is this is the number that is it's tough. So I spent a bit of time with the ICRC, the Red Cross, and I was talking to them about this, and they couldn't give a figure. The reason they don't give figures is because governments need to give figures, not a charity, an NGO as such. So it's a tough one. I think it's going to be plus 3,000, 3,500, if not more, maybe. There's so many people that, um, I don't know if people have seen them, but driving through towns and villages there's black banners across the roads and it's got the name of the soldier and the age and there's just hundreds of them all over the place and they're just the ones i've seen 
the families that I know people have gone to visit, there's hundreds of them and it's going into the thousands and going into the cemeteries. It's like, it's unreal. The cemeteries, it's just row after row or row of fresh flowers, newly buried men. Uh, so I don't think we're going to know for quite some time, the, the true statistics of it, but the Azeris are never going to release how many people that on their side died, but it's going to be a lot higher than the Armenians. But when you talk about a population of 2 million people, and you're talking thousands of men dying, that's a massive number. Mm. It, it, and and that's the issue some people have got, is people will say, well, we should have fought on, we should have kept on going, but they need to make a decision. If they were losing the war, and there was no chance of winning the war, do they continue fighting to the end and lose a whole generation of men mm. and every bit of territory of uh, Negro-Karabakh region, or do they make a deal, which I think they've done. But yeah, the true number, I'm not sure at the moment. What do you think the future of Armenia is? That's a tough question for an outsider, a foreigner like to even start on that one. The future of Armenia is very clear that everyone I've spoke to said there will be another war eventually down the line sometimes. That's, that's, ugh, there's no question about that, that this isn't over. And it's not me inciting another war, me wanting to go, yeah, they need to go back and fight. But I, I think the future of Armenia is uniting together as a country, the diaspora, um, working closer with Armenia. And I think, I've said several times before, is Armenia needs to become the Christian Israel. It needs to it needs to militarize. It needs to make itself a stronger nation that that if this was ever to happen again, that they're in a position that they could stand and fight. Because at the moment, 2020, they're not in a position to fight. And it's just shown it there. They, they haven't been investing in the military. They haven't been developing their military. And I think Armenia needs to make closer ties with Europe. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All the way through this campaign, they were always looking out the corner of their eye going, where's Russia? When's Russia coming to our aid kind of thing? And Russia couldn't come to their aid because geopolitically, Azerbaijan, they're very close to Russia as well. You've also got Turkey there as well. So I, I definitely think Armenia needs to start making closer ties with the rest of Europe because the only thing that frustrated me is that all it took was one country, one country like the UK, Germany or France, to stand up and say, we support Armenia. We're not allowing the aggression that's going on here uh, stop the war. It's just being vocal about stopping the war and siding really on Armenia. So, But because Turkey's there and they swear setting their allegiance to Azerbaijan very early as a native country made it very hard for everyone else to pipe up and stand up for Armenia. But definitely as a Christian country in that region, I think the world has totally sh is shameful for what they've done by not standing up. Mm -hmm. How was it with the uh, Russian soldiers guarding that area now? Yeah, the Russians. So we, the footage we've got is we've got, which will come out in the documentary, is we were at the government building when it, it was getting destroyed. Well, not it was getting smashed up we then left there and went to goris and then we met with the first group of russians that were crossing the border to peacekeepers going in we got there about four o'clock in the afternoon and we thought that the loads of russians had been in already so we were, i was just like let's just follow them let's just sit our vehicle behind all the tanks and just follow them all the way in so that's what i've done just followed all the russians in thinking they were like the second third lot going in but they were the original guys crossing the border so the russians thought we were armenian journalists the Armenians that we were coming across thought we were Russian journalists. So we just got brilliant footage of just following them all the way in and everything. And the Russians now are established everywhere. They've got checkpoints up. They're doing like facial recognition, number plate recognition, going through checkpoints and everything. The Russians are very friendly to the Armenians. 
without a doubt, you could tell they liked the Armenians. And some of the Russians I spoke to, they, they even said to me, if you see the Azeris, tell them we fuck their mums. There's, <laughs> there's, there's no love. I, I don't think there's any love for wow. the, the Russians with the with their Azerbaijanis. One, because they're Muslim and they're not Christian. Yeah. Two, the Russians know that Armenians are a lot more chilled out than the Azeris. Mm-hmm. And three, the Russians like a drink. Mm-hmm. And then if they're working with the Armenians, they get a drink. Um, I even hit... The last time I went back there, the last time I got stopped at a checkpoint and the Armenian, Armenian soldier come over and he's like, where are you going? I go to the panica. And he's like, have you got room in the back of your car? I was like, who for? He goes, for these three Russian soldiers? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. yeah. So three young Russian soldiers with their shopping bags who were just coming out of Goris. Yeah. And all you could hear, so I was like, got all the cameras out of the back and sitting them in the back. And all you could hear was the clink, clink of beer bottles. <laughs> so they've gone to the shop to go get their beer. And yeah, the Russians, have, from what I'm seeing so far, and whatever, what I saw personally and what everyone else is saying, currently at the moment, the Russians are very peaceful and very friendly to the Armenians. Beautiful. That's great to hear. Hey, was there ever a time that you were either, well, I, we found out early that you don't sleep at all because you, you've, you've texted uh-huh. me 24 hours of the day whenever I asked you to text me back. And, uh, but was there ever a time where you were sleeping there and, and a missile you know, was close to you or there was a scare? Yeah, so when I was in Stepanica um, during the war, it, staying in a hotel, the Europe Hotel, and the siren was going off, it, it, the warning siren. And, yeah, so there was a lot of shelling going on. The, the smirch rockets were landing, the grab missiles were landing all around. So, yeah, it's quite a noisy night, some of the nights. And it got to the stage where in the hotel I was in, in the basement, a lot of the locals were staying. And they were very anti, like, journalists for some reason in that hotel. I don't know what. So, I'd get up as soon as you heard the siren or you're hearing the bombing, you'd get up, go to the basement, and then you would just sit on the stairs in the basement. And one night, it was actually, the bombing was going on quite heavily in around us. And they were doing a church service in the basement at three o'clock in the morning. And it was like, I tried to get the camera out and someone just pointed at me like, and just mm. gave me the look of death to say, if you film this, we're going to lynch you. And I was like, this is a beautiful moment. And you can hear the siren going off. You can hear the bombing. And then you've got these these people in the basement just doing a Christian service. I mean, it was beautiful to watch, but it was a shame I couldn't get it on camera. So yeah, there was quite a few times where it, they weren't like bang on top of me, but in and around the area I was in. But the thing you've got with smirch artillery, grad rockets and everything is if it's your time, it's your time. They're not used to target. They're just thrown in a certain direction. And if you're unlucky enough to be hit by it, so be it. Mm. Leave us with one moment or story that you'll never forget there. Oh, wow. I think there's been so many of them. That's a, that's a, that's a real tough one, yeah. I think like what I was saying about meeting the families of, of lost soldiers or, or in fact going to the, one of the graveyards in Stepanica where they, they were bringing in the coffin of a soldier who's just been, just been killed and we asked permission from his dad, could we film? And his father said, yeah. Mm. He, he actually said, show the world my, why my son's died. Mm. So just standing there off to the side at the, at the graveyard and there was an open coffin where the lid was off and just one by one, everyone just coming up and just kissing his face before the father gave the signal to put the lid on and then they just lowered him into the ground and it's just like so, so moving, especially because my one of my younger brothers has died and seeing my father bury his son was like something I don't even, I just, I don't like I saying I compartmentize things very well. I, I try not to even think about it. I just shut that bit off that day. That my brother dying, his funeral off. And but I, 
but thinking about how my father would feel burying their son and then seeing this live play out in front of me again was like wow it's just like this is the, these are the real co- this is the real casualties of war isn't the soldiers getting put into the ground because he's a soldier it goes, it's the families the people that surround him they've got to live on while he's dead and now I think with the peace agreement where lots of people will be turning around going but why did our sons die and also another story where I was chatting to a mother and she was saying to me and this was like really hit me when she said this and she goes I'm prepared for I was prepared for to sacrifice my son for my homeland and it's like just even them words for a mother dream we know how maternal mothers are for a mother to say they were she's prepared to give up her son to protect her country is massive I was like wow that's so powerful and um and she even said she goes but I'm glad my son didn't die in this war I'm glad I didn't sacrifice my son in this war because we lost and it's just like wow it's just it's just these, these are the human stories that i want to i want to try and tell in a documentary and the, the working title we're working off in the documentary at the moment is 45 days so the reason we're going for 45 days is because the war officially was 44 days hmm. and on the 45th day that's when the agreement was signed that's when the future of armenia changed and on the 45th day, we've got the footage of the government building being destroyed. We've got the footage of the Russians moving in. And I think that's a turning point for everything. So that's the working title we're going off for the time being. That could change. But I think the 45th day of this war is being the most crucial one. Hmm. How'd your brother pass, Emil? Um, he, he was in London on his birthday night out and he was chased by a gang. Oh, and my God. they chased him into a train station, tried to rob him. And he, he jumped on the tracks to run away and got hit oh by a train. Oh, my God. Jeez, yeah, so man. it was I am so it sorry. Wasn't like, yeah, no, it's, it's just the way it is. And um, wow. so, yeah, to, to, to see, like, other people losing their sons. And knowing that is all my time in the military, all the time in my filming, I've taken a lot of risk. Risk is what I do. But I obviously try to do calculated risks and weighing things up to see, is it worth risk for rewards? So when, like, for example, my younger brother on his, on his birthday – it's getting chased by a gang, gets hit by a train who's never taken any real risk in his whole life. Mm. It's just like, it, you look at the bigger picture and go, what is going on here? And it's just like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Mm. You know what else I like about you? I like a lot of things about you. You know what else I like about you? Your podcast, Don't Argue With Stupid People. What the hell happened to that? <laughs> thing, yeah. That's one of my favorite titles ever. Yeah, I've, I've taken off the back burner on the podcast because uh, it's just I just don't have enough time in the day to do everything I'm yeah. doing. So, but yeah, don't argue with stupid people. It's because <laughs> social media is everyone's got an opinion because they're on social media. They're sat at home on their couch, yep. so they just want to be a dumbass by just talking shit mm-hmm. rather than actually learning and researching. And that's what pisses me off about people is when well, the platform social media is a brilliant platform, mm-hmm. but it's also used for a lot of abuse and. The amount of times I'm just I used to argue with idiots, just getting into debates about politics, about with something, mm-hmm. or um, about war with someone who doesn't really understand and don't really care. They're just they're just a troll and just want to cause problems. So that's why I started that podcast. Don't argue with stupid people, um, which I need to start again. Actually, I need to get up and going again. You do get this documentary out and get back on that podcast because I think a lot of people yeah, would, would yeah. be listening to it. I know the experience wasn't the same as it would be without you know the war and COVID, but let's try to end this on a positive note. I'm going to ask you a couple questions that you experience in Yerevan or in Armenia. Your, your favorite food that you experience in Armenia? 
kebab. I was going to say it's got to be an obvious one, right? <laughs> even though, even though, like my my father's Syrian, Syrian, I've, I've eaten a lot of kebabs over the year, yeah, yeah years. It's just, yeah, I, I like the kebab. And not only that is, I've forgotten how you pronounce it, but it's the the Georgian dumplings. Oh, the uh... starts with K. Oh man, you're calling me out right now. Um... Yeah, but even though they're Georgian, they're very well known in Armenia, and they're they're great as well. It'll come yeah, but generally me. the food is brilliant. I I really like the food. Apart from on my Instagram, uh, I posted about an English. I went for an English breakfast, and it came out, and it was the worst English breakfast I've ever had. And I done it as a bit of a joke on Instagram. I got so much hate mail for that. People going, "Well, there's men in trenches. Um, <laughs> why you, you're moaning about our food? Oh, you come to our country, you eat an English <laughs> breakfast. It's like, come on, it's a bit sarcasm." <laughs> so yeah, if you go into Armenia, never order the English breakfast. They still haven't figured you out on social media yet, huh? Some people haven't because they're just retarded. I think yeah. they're just not mentally capable to understand what a joke is. What about words? You learn any words? Uh, don't even start on that. Yeah, <laughs> they're always bad, man. That's exactly how we start people. We always start with yeah. bad words. The problem I've got is because I don't talk from my throat. I talk with my lips. Mm -hmm. So very much Armenian words are very hard for me. It's, it's, it's I'm terrible with languages. I'm so, not even going to attempt it. Even even my pronunciation of areas in in um, Karabakh, people have just rinsed me for it. So no, not even any bad words. Did they did they try to get you on some bad words? People did try to, but I was like, I'm not. I'm not even going to remember this one. So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> How about one thing you wish you did but didn't have a chance to? Oh, that's a good question. That one. I wish I'd came. I, I traveled earlier in the war. I wish I'd stayed longer, as in got more story. I think it's it's the jinx of being a filmmaker is that you want more. It's very greedy that I look on online, I see someone else's footage, or I see an interview, or I see something, and I go, "Wow, that's powerful! I'd love to have that bit of footage." And I think unless I am just hardcore in it, stay got there on day one and just hardcore the whole way to get as much as I can, that's probably my biggest regret. But it's the jealousy thing. It's, it, every filmmaker gets it, is that you always want more than what you've got. So yeah, I'd say that's the biggest regret. What about one thing, if you had to tell a diaspora, what would it be? That it's not over. And the fact is, diaspora done so much good work during the war that once the peace agreement was signed, they thought, oh, job over. We, we donated loads of money. We didn't win the war. I'm just going back to my normal life. I think the diaspora needs to start looking at Armenia um, for the future. This is the time that people need help. This is where the diaspora and so many so many expertise and skills around the world can come together to help Armenia move forward. And I think this is more crucial now for the diaspora in helping Armenia than it was actually during the war. How about going back and visiting the country? Yeah, so at the moment, um, because we're in the post-production phase, it's, it's going to be an intense thing. People think a documentary happens overnight. People are like, oh, why isn't the documentary ready? <laughs> it's mm. like, this is a feature documentary. It's going to take <laughs> a lot of time. So... Maybe I might have to go back in January, February time to do some more filming, potentially, If uh, once we start editing we realise we've got some stuff missing. If not, it'll be after the documentary is released to go back, hopefully do like a, a, a screening in your van, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. That's not COVID before anyone asks. Um, so we don't know. But yeah, 100% I'll be returning back to Armenia. I've got, uh, the country is a beautiful country. I've got a lot of support there, a lot of people, new friends and that. So, yeah, definitely return. Talking about visiting, you ever uh, come out to California? This is one of the biggest diaspora locations here. You ever think about coming out here and visiting? 
Yeah, 100%. So once again, I'm looking at potentially coming out at the beginning of the year. However, that might be on hold now because I've just been told I might have to isolate for 14 days once mm. I land in California, which is, is not feasible for me to sit in a hotel for two weeks, not mm. doing anything. So it all depends on COVID rules. Hopefully it changes after Christmas. So if I can turn up, um, have a test, go out, do the filming I need to do. So I need, uh, there's a few interviews I need to do. Um, hopefully I will. The only problem is there's so many people have, like from LA have gone, especially Glendale, who are like, come, if you come to LA, come and see us. Yeah. Uh, so I, I might have to wear disguise actually because <laughs> I have work to do and I won't have time to um, eat as many kebabs as I've been offered. <laughs> well, put me on that list, man. Anytime you think about coming down <laughs> here, hit me up, man. Love to have, a, love to have a drink with you. Totally, mate. I'll let you know. What's made you so tough, man? I, I know you've got some military background, so you're already a different breed. But did the toughness come at an early age? What was the environment like growing up for you? Uh, I mean, just, just by you getting in a plane from country to country and going in the middle of battleground or, or the military stuff for 10, 15 years, like, how did that come? What was what was it like early in, in your development ages? Yeah, well, I wouldn't use the word tough. What I'd say is... It comes with experience, it comes with knowledge. It's like anything. You, the more confident, the more you do something, the more confident you beget at doing it. Mm. Um, being a Royal Marine Commando is one of the toughest military trainings in the world. You're surrounded by men who are all alpha males. So growing up, I would say, uh, I'd say I was probably like quite timid to begin with. And then I started getting into my fitness at a younger age. And then I joined the military as an 18-year-old young boy. And just from there, just... After 9-11, we were very busy with conflicts around the world um, and operations. So it was just getting that experience. So I wouldn't say it's toughness. I'll just say it's just it's training and it's just knowledge. And turn up in war zones isn't something that phases me. Um, I understand war zones. I understand the risk to a certain degree in certain areas. So I can make risk assessments of very quickly in my head. Um, of course, I've been, even my filming days, I've been ambushed loads of times or caught out by artillery or mortar strikes and stuff like that. Even in Karabakh by drones and stuff. Just you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's, you can't put a risk assessment in for everything. But I try to control my situation. I don't ever try push it too much for the story. But yeah, I think it's just having that knowledge and being a young man. I'm not even young, but just years of fighting against the Taliban who are ferocious enemy uh, against the Iraqi army against al-qaeda it's just fine against these these organizations you just get a robustness for it and you, you just like well if it's my day it's my day hmm. last question the documentary when do you anticipate it coming out this is the golden question hey it's what everyone wants to know so at the moment like i was saying it's a feature documentary so it's a long there's a lot of footage. We still might need to get some more footage. So there might be a few more trips I need to do to certain places, get interviews and stuff. So we're aiming for April. That's what I'm going for. And because of spring and hopefully COVID's chilled the fuck out a bit and things are going back to normal in places. <clears throat> but mainly uh, it's going to take so long to produce and, and to direct, to get it right to the level that it needs to be to tell the story correctly. So April we're going for distribution at the moment there is no distribution it's still a totally independent project which i'm happy about at the time being so we don't know how it's going to be screened if it's going to go or it could be commissioned for normal television or if it's going to be more totally independent film festivals view on demand um so that's still open i mean i'm in talks with a lot of people 
there's a lot of interest about this documentary. So we'll see how it goes. But there's still definitely need a lot more work on actually get, putting the stories together. But is that I'm at that stage now where I get I get like this every time when I make a documentary is I film it, think I've got brilliant footage, and then when I'm actually in the limbo between production and post production, I start doubting how good it's gonna be. And then when you're editing it, you're watching it so many times that you just lose interest and you're just mm. like, this is shit. Mm-hmm. It's like because I've, when you watch something so many times, you're like, wow, this is really, this guy's re- this interview I'm watching now is just boring the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. But really, for someone who's watching it for the first time, they're like, that's brilliant. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough one at the moment. So I need to get it right. And as you know, you got to step away sometimes to get fresh ears and eyes too. Totally. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's what um hopefully we're going to do is if we can get a little bit more funding for this project we're going to try and get a full editing suite a total team that can come in and so as a director i'm like this is what the story we're telling this is how we're going to tell it and then you've got someone on your shoulder like a producer who turns around and goes well actually Emil, if you if you if you change that interview around or if you cut that bit out the story it'd be told and it totally like you're saying with fresh eyes sometimes it just gets rid of that tunnel vision Emil, God bless you, mate. Thank you so much for taking the time. Incredible conversation. I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing, what you did. And there are so many people looking forward to this documentary. They can't wait for it to come out. Who cares? You know, who picks it up, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're going to find a way to watch it, buy it, whatever it takes. So thank you so much, man. Awesome. Thank you very much, mate. Much appreciated. Talk about a guy who takes life by the horns. You know, when I asked him that that tough question, you know, him being tough, you know, he, he's being humble about it. Or maybe he just doesn't know because he's tough. <laughs> he's a really tough guy. And he should know about that. Um, just, you know, like I said, going from country to country, just kind of dropping things and going and doing it. Uh, and then the whole military experience. And then the story about his brother. Uh, you know, how he just, he has the, the mind of, if it's your time, it's your time. I mean... Bearing your brother, man, is that can't be easy. And for his dad to bury his son is, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy to see. I'm sure it's it's a crazy experience. And um, yeah, so for him to just kind of get over it and, and move on and, and live life, it's it's a, it's a lot harder for others. And for him, it it seems like it's a I'm not gonna say seamless, but he can get over it and move on and understands it. It's part of life, and that's that's hard for a lot of people to get and understand. What is most important here is this documentary, making sure that he's going to be able to publish it and making sure he's going to have the proper editors to edit this thing uh, properly and as professional as possible. And he's got the help. So his GoFundMe page is important and he's almost at his goal. If you search documentary 45 days war in Artsakh, you will find that GoFundMe page and you can donate to him so he can finish this thing. And, uh, and share it with all of us. What else is important is, you know, that dumpling that he called me out about. Chinkali. 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 Right? Chinkali. I'm probably botching it, but it hit me afterwards. Uh, I, I put out a little a notice on uh, Instagram, and thank, thankfully everybody participated and let me know what that was. Everybody had a different spelling, but now I know what it was. And as a kid, I had that. I was young when I had it the last time. I found a place, of course, in Glendale, California, so I'll be visiting that place and having some Hingali. Hingali. <laughs> it's so good. The place looks really good, too. It's called Hingali House. So, I don't know, maybe most of you have been there. Again, if 
you enjoyed this conversation that I had with the mill, if you enjoyed some of the other episodes, first off, thank you for making me a part of your day. If you can share this with a friend or two, it would be very appreciative. I am Mike Gabriel. This was Mike Up Pod. Until next time, folks. No wasted days. Let's go.